0: Hello, and welcome to Two Guys, Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Frank Pelicone. This is Chris Gasparri. You'll notice the change in format for this evening. Um, it's because our 110th episode is going to be the top five movies that Chris loves that Frank is indifferent to. So in um, opposition to our usual uh, style of doing these episodes, I'm going to introduce the movie and then turn it over to Chris to tell me what he loves so much about these movies that I find uh, passively mediocre. <laughs> so, um, I, guess... I, I,
1: I noticed you didn't say that I have to summarize these movies. So can we skip that part? Cause that's the part that terrifies me every single time that we, well, the two times now that we've done
0: this, you know, I feel like you, um, I feel like you do what you feel. Okay. Like all, uh, all bets are off this evening. So this is different, um, different format. Um, I guess my opening question, similar to what you always ask me, is, were there any movies that you thought about putting on this list that you found maybe I would be either less indifferent to on the positive or less indifferent on the negative?
1: Well, you made this list, technically. Like, uh, so the way that we've done this, like both times now, like so everybody knows, is I, I created a gigantic list of movies the first time around when we did the movies that you hate. I created a gigantic list. And you picked the five that you hated the most um and then this time around i just kept track of a list of movies that i i guess loved or really liked and i want to say we had about 10 but i think i deleted those off my phone um as i like pared it down in terms of movies but i remember collateral was one of those movies yeah. Um, that came really close to being on this list and then something else beat it out and replaced it. And I can't remember which one it was. Um, I don't know, but um, I'm
0: pretty indifferent to collateral.
1: Right. And I did rewatch collateral and I still really like collateral a lot. I, um, think it's a really good kind of action piece for Fox and Cruz both. Um, I think it helps that Cruz plays a villain in it. Um, uh as a guy who you ultimately are not very sympathetic with but still has just enough flashes of humanity that uh he becomes a fully fleshed out character so much like Cruz in real life a guy that you're not really sympathetic with but you see that there's humanity underneath of it um despite um the brainwashing um so i think that role fit him actually really well just like i did thought the magnolia role fit him really well um but yeah i was i thought I thought it was good um, it still held up uh who was that man um man is kind of like i guess like testing out what he would eventually use in miami vice which is i think a slightly less successful movie although not a terrible movie um in terms of like the digital at night look of everything with the bright lights and, um so yeah i thought collateral still held up i'm trying to think of another one i'm always trying to get you to say that you hate um beside an adventure um
0: I actually enjoy the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> I don't know why.
1: I think I tried to slip it on this list too to see if I get you to say you were indifferent to the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> I, I mean it didn't, I didn't work.
0: I, I have a lot of nostalgic affection for the Poseidon Adventure, so I don't know. I, I don't know where you get the idea that I dislike it, but it's um it's pretty funny.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, I can't remember what else was on this list. There was like three more movies that uh that you're definitely indifferent to. But um Yeah, The Collateral is the only one that came close to making the list, I would say.
0: And just as a way of definition, the indifference comes from the fact that, like, it's not a movie I particularly enjoy watching, but I recognize some merit to it. Or it doesn't bother me to the point where I have any revulsion to it. It's just, eh, it's all right. It's whenever you ask me if I like it, and I say it's fine. That's typically an indifferent movie. That's sometimes true yeah sometimes
1: you 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 have you have uh different levels of it's fine
0: right there's the dismissive lord of the rings it's fine which is that i'm not going to talk about this movie in public with anyone right when in reality there's a level of revulsion
1: that's the avoidance it's fine fine um and then there's the ones that annoy you but you don't want to have it's also it's just it's another it's a different level that's a personal avoidance like you don't want to have the conversation with that person but you can tell by your voice that you're annoyed by the movie but you're all you also don't hate it so it's just it's fine
0: fine it's fine
1: and then you move on to a different topic um and then if you just say it's fine like then you just think it's okay and you don't really care So three levels i think okay um what's going to, what's gonna be interesting though is like uh i when i hear about what you think about these movies because now the other thing is you've ranked these movies from the movie out of the five the movie that you're least indifferent to right
0: yeah yes yes
1: so really it's like the movie that you i guess like could say you like the most to hate the most kind of in the terms of indifference yeah, watching these okay so but yeah collider was the only one i think they to answer your specific question you got any more questions
0: uh no i'm gonna whenever you're ready i guess we can go ahead and get started <gasps> uh
1: um <clears throat> i will just say that i i do love these episodes only because it's my it's the only payback that i ever get to really have i think um sometimes of making you watch shit (laughs) that i know that you have no interest in whatsoever um so some of this is like payback for that sword and sorcery podcast
0: i always think about excalibur every time we um talk about an episode like this yeah yeah there's definitely a movie on here that is my excalibur payback i'm I'm not gonna lie so (laughs) yeah i i I got you good there um
1: Which was which was foreshadowed in um last year at the very end of last year that because um, I, I told you if that movie wasn't on your 81 list um that I was gonna boycott the episode um, <clears throat> you said it'll be making another list soon enough and uh, right so <laughs> this is it all right I'm
0: ready all right uh, so to kick it off we're gonna go with the 1987. 1987- Film Space, directed by Joe Dante, starring Dennis Quaid, Martin Short, Meg Ryan, Robert Picardo, Kevin McCarthy, and Fiona Lewis. It has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 82% from critics and 65% from audiences. Uh, tell me why I should care about this movie.
1: <laughs> so the movie itself um, follows Tuck Pendleton, who is a kind of a braggadocio uh, pilot, uh, who's, you know, very, like, acclaimed in terms of, like, being this, like, pilot and he's part of this experimental program that is going to miniaturize, like, uh, what a vessel and the people inside of it and um, these uh, bad guys break into the lab when they're doing the experiment. This is after he's been miniaturized and he's, like, in, like, a syringe. Um, he hasn't been injected into the, what, bunny rabbit that he's supposed to be injected into, so one of the scientists gets away, uh, you know, and uh, from the bad guys and is, you know, on the run from them. Um, so simultaneously, while all that is going on, we're introduced to Jack Putter, uh, who's played by Martin Short. And Putter is uh, what, like a hypochondriac, um, insecure, not confident in himself like whatsoever, And he works at a grocery store. He has this recurring dream about a woman who um, uh, is upset with him because the uh, prices are not working correctly on the register um, when he's scanning items and it like ends up being like millions of dollars or something like that. And she pulls out a um, uh, she gets upset and pulls out a little tiny gun um, and he's like wakes up every time because he thinks she's going to shoot him. So very um, anxiety-ridden guy and being treated by the doctor at the beginning um, for his kind of anxiety. And this is who the uh, scientist who has the syringe with Tuck Pendleton miniaturized inside of it um, injects, ends up finding in the mall and like he injects Jack Putter. So he injects Tuck Pendleton in the Jack Putter and now Tuck Pendleton in this little vessel is inside Jack Putter's body. Um, and needs his help, uh, this, this, you know, kind of like a uh, neurotic, uh,'s help to kind of track down the bad guys and figure out like what happened, like, you know, and how he can get himself out, um, and be able to, like, you know, uh, fix everything. And so he ends up hooking up with uh, Tuck Pendleton's uh, ex at this point, like on again, off again, girlfriend, played by Meg Ryan, uh, Lydia and jack putter and lydia end up like you know basically becoming this like uh almost like old 40s like you know duo trying to like you know track down the bad guys um and save tuck and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. um <clears throat> which they eventually do and it's filled with all these like you know different characters from the bad guys um the, the character played by Kevin McCarthy, who's a famous character actor from this time in the, uh, the 80s and 90s. Um, same thing with Fiona Lewis, like popping up things here and there. Robert Picardo is a character called the cowboy. Um, shows up and like, you know, so they like defeat, oh, um, and uh, what's his name? Uh, Vernon Wells, right, um, is also in it. Yeah. um, Of commando fame. And um, <clears throat> so all these like bad guys and they kind of like, you know, slyly like, you know, um, get past them and everything, and they end up saving tuck and um by the end, like Jack putter is gained a sense of confidence um it ends on this kind of cliffhanger where the bad guys are going after Lydia and Tuck, who are now married, it uh, just got married. And he realizes the bad guys are still after him, and he like you know heroically like jumps into a, uh, a convertible and like drives off after him. Um, and you can see he's like grown as a person by the end. So that's like the the rough idea of the movie. It's a comedy. It's a pretty typical comedy from um, I think the eighties. Um, ridiculous concept to a large degree, um, unrealistic, uh, but um, basically is like a buddy cop movie to some degree um with tuck and uh, uh jack like kind of like sparring off each other um and i think that's the element of it i enjoy the most probably is i think there's a really strong chemistry between quade and um short in this verbally um in terms of their verbal sparring i think those scenes particularly when short's talking to tuck inside of him and then like confuses people sometimes because it looks like he's talking to himself I think all that dialogue is really well done Um, I think it's really well delivered by both actors Uh, I was a really big Martin Short fan when I was young because you have to understand like 86 is around I guess the time of like Ed Grimley and what the synchronized swimming stuff from SNL and I really liked that stuff um, when I saw it so i was a big fan of Martin Short already and he kind of goes into his ed grimley character at one point when he drinks alcohol it seems for like kind of the maybe the first time ever um which i think is a great scene too where it's like um tuck wants the, you know is a whiskey drinker of course because he's this you know um hardened cocky pilot you know and he um wants a drink so like jack has to like take a drink of alcohol like so that he can um uh when it washes down his body tuck and like put his little flask outside of the vessel and um get it filled up um but um yeah he does the ed grimley stuff which i think is I, I think it's one of the things i always laugh at in the movie is that sequence where he's drunk and um dancing around um but rocking the night away is that what's playing um so i really like the the leads in this. Um, uh, Meg Ryan's kind of like, she's perfectly acceptable in this role. I think the character itself is largely an afterthought, it seems to me. Um, She's just kind of a prop, like, um, uh, to help the plot along. Uh, But she's she's fine in this. Um, I really love the supporting cast of characters in this. I think it's like the thing that really, and this is going to be a theme, I think, throughout a lot of these movies, is I think the supporting cast is really, really strong. So, Um, Henry Gibson plays the store manager for um, uh, Jack Putter's character for the Martin Short character. And um, I love Henry Gibson, like everything I've ever seen Henry Gibson in, I absolutely love as a character actor. He's in my favorite comedy, probably one of my favorite comedies ever, which is The Burbs, another Joe Dante movie. Um, Dick Miller's in it as a cab driver early on, like, you know, another Dante regular I like Kevin McCarthy a lot. I think he does well as a slimy bad guy in a lot of roles. Robert Picardo, which is probably I guess most well known for, is that Voyager he's on or one of those? I think it's Voyager, um, Star Trek Voyager. He played the Doctor, like the like the hologram Doctor. This um, is probably his most famous role. But um, Picardo playing the cowboy in this, it probably is my favorite supporting character in the entire thing um uh when I was I remember you have to remember I was again seven years old like eight years old when I'm like watching this like like a lot um and Picardo is um using this like it's look it's what uh like uh, what's that called like it's like whitewashing I guess to some degree it's like you know this is supposed to be Hispanic character um and you have this like white guy playing it which now i you know um i kind of like raise my eyebrow a little bit at it but um but i thought it's fucked up like english and stuff like that was really funny when i was a kid um I, I i like the way he talked um i i love what he's singing in the mirror um i'm just an old cow hand from the rio Grande. um he's just an absurd character um this like you know I guess assassin who like you know or like fixer who's just this like obsessed with cowboy imagery and uh, it's it's a um and is like thinks he's a Hathario it's a hilarious character to me. Vernon Wells is in it, Wendy Shaw's in it who's another Dante regular, she's in the birds as well. Um that plays the girl that doesn't want anything to do with Jack. Um and then wants him at the end and he just dismisses her. Um Little details in the movie like make me laugh like um, the uh, Kevin McCarthy character um, at one point like is gets a phone call and he's sitting in an office and his office is has a pink light from the ceiling and it's like what like a shag like white carpet and his dog is sitting on a glass, like the glass desk that he's using, his dog is sitting on and the camera pulls back at one point like cuts and you see like it's just a very corner of an abandoned building where he has this white shag carpet and this pink lighting and a glass desk set up and everything else is just empty and it's like just this bizarre little thing like who does this? Um, I, I think those things are hilarious in it. And um, uh, and uh, what else is there? I guess there's a personal thing. I think probably it appealed to me as a young kid because of that core story of the guy who overcomes anxiety. Hmm. Probably appealed to me. Um, uh, like I love the moment in that movie where um, Martin Short like thinks like talks giving him power. <laughs> and you know he goes and like punches the the guy and like realizes like you know that Tuck's not inside of him he's actually when he kissed Lydia like he got Tuck got transferred to her and like you know like he didn't he doesn't need Tuck to like you know stand up and I guess be a man or whatever um I just think it's a really like for a a ridiculous comedy it's a really tight story like this is a bad example but this is what I wrote probably because I've been drinking Um, is because I probably just watched King Kong versus Godzilla, like how those movies have no character development at all. Like, you know, there's no there's no B stories, there's no C stories really in terms of like what is this movie about? It's just it's just about fucking monsters fighting, and you got these characters doing whatever they need to do in order to propel that plot forward. Um you think about the setup of this movie in the first 25 minutes, you have this idea of the buddy cop comedy. You have the idea of a love story you have the idea of this coming of age or coming to adulthood story and you have like the ridiculous sci-fi plot you know that gets wrapped in there and in 25 minutes you have four different like major stories that are being told throughout this and I just don't think you see in comedies that kind of script writing nowadays like whereas people are actually successfully telling narratives um, okay I'm done like I think it's a, I think it's a well cast, movie overall solid enough script writing for a comedy um with these little nuggets of character actors or um uh ridiculous scenes that like really propel it forward and still make it funny even today
0: yeah so i don't disagree with anything you said um it's probably been 30 plus years since i've seen this movie Mm -hmm. um and i have no nostalgic affection for it um, part of that was because I don't know that my parents liked it, so they didn't rent it often. Hmm. I'm pretty sure I've only seen it like maybe one or two times. Um, when I was a kid, I loved um, science fiction and horror, so I was a pretty big fan of The Fantastic Voyage, which this is kind of like a parody of. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie, but it's the same idea. I ne-
1: no, I've never seen it.
0: <clears throat> a miniaturized sub that's injected into a person. Hmm. Um, you know it's fine it's it's fine like i don't i laughed a couple times watching it i didn't think it was like super funny but i didn't think it was like lame or like bad or anything so it's a fine movie i just like you know i watch things like the stuff we talk about all the time like things like movies like goonies and i don't know the monster squad and like those are things that i have a lot of nostalgia for and so i love those movies um probably to a greater extent than they deserve but this one it's just you know it's whatever it's fine
1: yeah you tend to like um those kind of like comedies with like children protagonists a lot more than i do i think a lot of times um which is yeah it is interesting cause, I mean, it's interesting because it's well documented so far in the podcast that you're you don't like talking about like traditional like things that are labeled as comedies. Like you, we talk about a lot of comedies, but they're usually like a hybrid of some sort, like mm-hmm. comedy drama, comedy horror, comedy. You know, I mean, but we don't necessarily. We've had one episode right where we talk about like tra- just a traditional comedy type thing, um, and you fought against that like tooth and nail for like a week. I think of like not wanting to, to do it, but then you like sat down and realized you, there were movies you liked. But um, so yeah, so. This might be the first first comedy we've talked about, like straight comedy we've talked about in a long time.
0: Nope. Let's <laughs> end this trend now.
1: <laughs> All right.
0: Anything else you want to say about this? Or, no, um... no, I said it, everything. All right, so let's move on to the number four movie. Uh, we're going to talk about 1995's Crimson Tide, um, which continuously throughout the past month, I have confused with The Hunt for Red October to the point of Almost watching The Hunt for Red October several times, but I I did not do that. Uh Um, Crimson Tide is directed by Tony Scott, stars Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman, George Zunza, Viggo Mortensen, James Gandolfini, and Matt Craven. It's got a Rotten Tomatoes score of 88% from the critics and 83% from the audience. Uh, Let's talk about this middling submarine epic.
1: That's really unfair. What's what's what are good submarine? What's not a middling submarine epic?
0: There's only one submarine epic, and that's dust Boot. dust Boot, yeah. Which you'll also never talk about. Um, <clears>
1: one <throat> wants. To, did you say nobody wants to talk about this movie?
0: I don't want to. Oh, okay. All right.
1: Um, I was really hoping you would one day so I could rewatch it. Um, because I won't rewatch unless you ever make me to make me do it. But um, <clears throat> it's just too long. I think this is like a pared down, like digestible kind of like middling, I guess, summary movie or something like that. Um, so this um, this is like all like Cold War based, um, as a lot of summary movies were like around like you know this time time frame, um, where there's uh, the story is Russian rebels have taken over what are they ICBM missiles right at the time I think it was um, ICBMs. Um, and so the Americans have to mobilize because of this, because they don't know if like these Russian rebels that have taken over these missiles are going to, um, uh, you know, launch them. Um, so there's this nuclear sub, the USS Alabama, um, and the commander of that sub is, um, uh, what Captain Ramsey, which is played by Gene Hackman, uh, this kind of grizzled, um, veteran who came up through the ranks um of uh of the navy and he needs a new uh xo like a second in command um and he goes ahead and chooses captain uh, commander hunter um who is the denzel washington character um now this is uh hunter is uh, college educated um you know is kind of come up through the ranks a little quicker because of his college education those kind of things So automatically, you have these kind of, um, you know, he's very thoughtful, like, very, like, you know, much more philosophical than this kind of, like, you know, brute force um, captain. Uh, And already, there's, like, this obvious, like, kind of, like, conflict between the two of them, and just in terms of their personalities, Uh, uh, as evidenced by little things, like... um, uh, Ramsey smokes cigars, you know, and he offers Hunter one he realizes when Hunter starts coughing that he's never smoked a cigar in his entire life, um, right before they go into the water. So anyway, they're put on this mission and um, they're supposed to be mobilized to see if um, the rebels do anything, then they are going to have to launch themselves potentially. <clears throat> So they end up getting an order. There's a conflict um, between submarines under underwater, and uh, the Alabama gets damaged. The communications get damaged. The uh, uh, whatever they're called, like the communique, gets interrupted. You only get a partial message. Um, Ramsey seems to think that it means that the rebels are getting ready to launch, and that they should launch in response. Um, Denzel's character, uh, you know, Commander Hunter, the XO uh, says that they should wait, um, until they get a full message, um, before they make such a, you know, drastic move, um, Ramsey gets upset with Hunter, um, you know, and has him, like, put away, uh, there's a coup, um, on the sub where Hunter and like-minded individuals end up taking power away from Ramsey, um, then there are the people that are support Ramsey, um, end up kind of like, and then it becomes just this cat and mouse game kind of, of like these two sides battling with one another, um, uh, you know, basically trying to like have a mutiny after mutiny, um, against each other aboard the submarine, um, over this, you know, uh, idea, um, eventually like, you know, there, there's this showdown, um, the, you know, tense sequence where the communique, They get the communications back up, the communique is coming through, um, you know, and I think think it's a really great scene. It might be a little stereotypical, but really great scene of this quiet moment where they're waiting to hear back about the communique and Hackman and Denzel like sit down um, and recall a conversation they had earlier in the movie um, about horses. Um, And the horses ends up becoming the symbol of like, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And there's like, finally, an acknowledgement of the racial component to the relationship a little bit. Um, uh, And eventually Hunter's right. Um, Ramsey kind of like goes, you know, away at that point and gives command to Hunter once he's been proven right. Um, and then the very end of the movie, um, the Navy doesn't really know what to do with either of them. Ramsey's going to retire. He's recommended Hunter for the next captain opening, um, in the Navy for his own sub, um, which I guess is supposed to show that he's like a decent guy after all. Um, and, um, yeah, and that's the end of the movie. Like, you know, crisis is averted and it's really about this power struggle between these two strong personalities, over um, this kind of impossible situation. Um, <clears throat> and that's the story. Um, I think there's solid tension that's built up through this movie. Um, I think that there are some really sharply drawn characters in terms of the two principles, um, particularly. Um, the supporting cast, I think the actors, um, uh, even if they're loosely drawn, the actors themselves add to these um add to these like supporting characters so I mean Frank right off the list it's like you have the likes of you know um yeah Zunza and um Viggo Mortensen and Gandolfini and Matt Craven and a couple other like people that like you would recognize maybe in movies but you know not know their names I think it really those those character actors really add like you know a sense of realism to these characters and make them seem maybe more better drawn than they actually are um but at least they're really good at delivering dialogue and you know it makes it i think like you know like more believable um i really like that there's like this philosophical concept at the core of the movie like this impossible situation where it's like you could legitimately have debates on what the right thing to do is um and um you know it feels like the movie to i see the movie even though like with the spurts of action like tension that's like obvious like that's what the focus is it almost feels like a never-ending like a continuous debate throughout the entire movie um that's happening and i really like that element to it um i love the difference I, i i think hackman and denzel are amazing in this movie and i love the contrast between these two characters which is the morally complex black man versus this white you know who's college educated versus this old white man of the old guard who came up through the ranks and is more you know um i feel it in my gut um it really does like to me kind of like um you know it really is kind of like this kind of left versus right you know stereotype in a a lot of in in a lot of ways but i think it plays out really well um i love uh so tarantino famously did some rewrites on this, and I think you can definitely see, like, his fingerprints on certain things, such as, like, Silver Surfer references and Star Trek references, um, and most famously, the horse um, dialogue, like, where um, Hunter is um, really into horses, and Ramsey like, knows a bit about horses, it seems, but pretends or you know acts like he knows more than what he does um early on in the movie and then it gets recalled in the ending sequence and um you know he's once again mistaken because he doesn't know as much as he wants as he thinks he does and denzel like kind of turns it around on him um and almost calls him out like on his race he makes basically hack makes a racist comment about how uh, the i can't remember the lips and the stallions or whatever are are white um um, as a, um, And he's kind of, like, signifying that, like, his race almost makes him superior, Hackman is in the, in the movie, and um, uh, Denzel tells him, but they're born black, um, and kind of acknowledges the racism of the statement, uh, which is the only time race really, like, verbally gets addressed, like, you know, in actuality, but you feel the tension of it, I think, at times. Um, so, I love all that stuff. Uh, oddly, I love the... Um, you made a text that was not necessarily referencing this movie, but I think you were talking about this
0: movie. Inspired by this movie.
1: Right. Um, about like the what the, everybody like what celebrating or, or singing to a song. That's what it was.
0: A group of grown men singing yeah. to some women's like mm-hmm. doo-wop song from the 50s happens yeah. in every one of these fucking yeah. 80s yeah. and 90s like male movies.
1: Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um yeah, it's it's cheesy and I think even like the um like towards the end of the movie when they aren't going to attack, like aren't going to launch, everybody like cheers. Um I think that's a little cheesy, like it's just very stereotypical. That said though, I love the score of this movie. Um I think the score is really effective and I think that particular score that's playing when that scene happens is really effective and I think it's been used in a lot of trailers since. Um, if I if I remember correctly. I think it's um I think it's Zimmer, I think, that did the score of that, if I remember um Hans Zimmer. Um, I really like that. I love the sound in this movie. The sound feels very authentic, like of when they're like kind of like running down steps and all those kind of things. It actually makes it feel the sound to me like a um like an actual sub. Um like that they're in an actual space. And it's something I noticed rewatching it again this time. The thing that I actually one thing I hate about this movie. Um, Tony Scott uses Dutch angles fucking constantly. Constantly. He can't stop himself. And I'm assuming he's trying to signify like both the like imbalance of being on the sub, like, you know, like a like of being underwater and all these things, but also like signify it in the tension as well. And I, I hate the choice to constantly be doing Dutch angles. I find it I actually find it distracting when I watch it anymore. Um, how often he does it but overall like uh, that's um, I just think it's a really solid action movie with two great actors well-drawn characters interesting dialogue at times um, really good sound really good um, uh, score
0: to it I will point out that this is a um, uh, Don Simpson Jerry Bruckheimer produced film Mm. Um, and they definitely tend to use um, Dutch angles and slow motion um in in spades so yeah, you're right i mean it just is what it is in that respect i i would imagine that's probably less tony scott and more like post-production editing um influence from the mm. principal producers
1: mm. it makes sense yeah i didn't think about that really yeah because i mean like the the rock pro uh, now that i think about it has tons of the dutch angles and stuff like that right
0: yes yeah yeah and also a lot it, it just It's very similar where it like tries to give weight and import to scenes through like duplicitous means, you know what I mean? Like as opposed to letting Mm -hmm. the phenomenal like performances, like you're exactly right. Like just incredible performances from Washington and a hackman in this movie um, could have carried the whole thing. And then they're trying to just kind of force you like they don't trust. Yeah, they don't trust the narrative to carry the emotional weight of the scene. They try and force it onto you
1: right yeah he interferes with the story um i guess is yeah you're right this is the complaint that i have kind of about that stuff
0: um another movie that i don't really have any nostalgic affection for i saw it in the theater um maybe one time after that i think um i have no problem with it um aside from some minor quibbles things that you brought up um i think the james gandolfini character is um I don't know, like a, a caricature as opposed to, like actually building any character into him. Like it seems like really out of place in a submarine full of professionals. <clears throat> that there's this guy who's just like itching to shoot, you know, Denzel Washington. Yeah. Um, his EXO or whatever. But Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's I true. I mean, I'm, yeah. I don't I, think I'm they, not...
1: take, I don't think they take pains enough showing his. I, I think the idea was supposed to be that he's so devoted to ramsey that he's willing to do anything the man says but it's like and they t- and they do a little bit with it but they i don't think that they get i don't think they spend enough time on it to make it where it could be realistic
0: but so let me ask let me ask you this question because i'm i i think i made this i made this connection having never made this connection before uh-huh. um hackman's dog's name is bear right uh-huh. and then gandolfini is bear in get shorty get shorty Mm -hmm. do you think that's on purpose that that's like they were
1: bear was the name of the guy in in the book
0: so it's just a funny coincidence
1: it's just a coincidence yeah yeah
0: the only thing the the thing again and i'm gonna like not to shit on james gandalfini because i think he's a pretty great actor Mm -hmm. it just felt like it, it feels like his character in raising arizona that's what this guy is like. They're basically the same character. They get off on inflicting pain. They get off on, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, hold he's on, loyal.
1: Raising, you mean
0: true romance? True romance, right? Okay. I, Raising a, Arizona. That's funny. Yeah, that would, that would make that maybe a better movie if it was that character.
1: It, it, that right? Yeah, rather than John. Yeah, right.
0: Got a lot of hot in a cage. <laughs>
1: Oh god, I now I'm just picturing a beating up Nick Cage with that like keychain or whatever, like dry-
0: <laughs> right, Drew. Right. <Yeah>. Oh. <laughs> oh fucking Nick Cage. But yeah, it was fine. I enjoyed watching it this time. Um I would say I was probably a little less indifferent to this movie than Inner Space to the mm-hmm. positive, but I also had a lot more problems with this movie than I had with Inner Space. Mm. I I love military movies, except when I don't, I guess. Does that make sense? And this is one of those ones where, I don't know. It's a little too much procedural, and then it just kind of like, it's hard for me to suspend my disbelief that these professionals would behave this way. Like, it's almost as silly as the idea of, um, you know, like we're in the rock, they're, ed harris is leading them to steal this chemical weapon so he can extort money from the government which is absolutely ridiculous but the rock is like made to be ridiculous whereas this is made to be more of like a serious you know thought-provoking movie and i just i feel like it doesn't um
1: yeah i mean i i think they try to save the ridiculousness of it a little bit at the end when like jason robarts has that cameo as like the admiral who is, like, never in the history of the Navy, have we ever, like... And trying to show, like, you know, like, the import of, like, how fucked up the situation really was, like, in terms of, like, if it actually sure. happened. But I don't know if they did enough with it again to sell the idea completely. Um, I'm sure that's exactly what a, one of those rooms looks like with the admirals when they're, like, reviewing something. But it felt like... I don't know they felt like they were like in like a, a, a wing of a lie like an offshoot room of a library or something and it just didn't feel epic or grand enough to like really set you know it wasn't it was filmed very naturalistically which is actually odd because he spent so much of his time not doing that um to where it's like not like any slow drawn out like you know dialogue or anything like um no pauses so it actually like takes away the importance of that scene, I think. Um so maybe Tony Scott's just like not a great director. I don't know.
0: That's, that's accurate. Um <laughs> the other thing too that this has nothing to do with um Crimson Tide, but I kept thinking about fucking Battlestar Galactica the whole time I was watching it. Hmm. Like EXO has the con, uh, Captain right. has the con, like all that stuff. Yeah, right. Um Edward James Almous and Ty is was that his name? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Um,
1: Did it give you bad memories? Yeah. Is it- no, no, no. It's just oh. I just
0: kept thinking about it. Oh, Okay. As much as we made fun of Battlestar, there was a lot of things I really liked about that show. So
1: yeah, like half
0: the and I enjoyed ha- watching it.
1: Half the first season was good. Some of the second season was good.
0: Yeah, third
1: season. Every- third season was pretty good overall. Like
0: every season had stuff to recommend it. I think, and sure. even though it had the silly pseudo-religious element to it like it's still you know it did it it did its sci-fi action well enough right right so
1: all right well anything no No, i mean if you um if if you like uh military movies except for when you don't i mean it's kind of like uh me hating white people movies unless i don't um so
0: right except military drama is an actual Genre of film, whereas white people movie is just whatever. I'm just trying you to. A... A... I'm just
1: trying to give you a segue, Frank. I'm just trying to build it in.
0: Oh my god, <laughs> I had forgotten that this was next. All right, so number three movie on the list, thanks to Chris's segue, um, 1996 uh, film, Beautiful Girls. <laughs> that was such disdain. You just said the word film. <laughs> different disdain uh it's directed by ted demi um stars timothy hutton matt Dillon, uh, Noah 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 annabeth gish lauren holly rosie o'donnell max burlick uma thurman martha Plimpton, natalie portman and 90s heartthrob michael rapaport um currently sits at a 79 percent with critics on rotten tomatoes and an 81 percent audience which is one of the rare times on our podcast where the audience score is higher than the critical score, which is interesting. It is. Um, so I guess just get it out there. Let's talk about this movie.
1: All right. So I'm going to try to like shorten the summary. Cause like there's so many characters and stuff like that. I mean, so the primary character is um, Willie, who is a jazz pianist in New York. Um, he comes from the small town of what is it? Uh, Night's Ridge, Massachusetts, Uh, he leaves like his hometown he goes to pursue his music his career is not doing that great he's just kind of gone from gig to gig he's engaged to a uh what she's a lawyer um like a longtime girlfriend who's a lawyer um he comes back for his high school reunion um and basically because he's at a crossroads both um in terms of his like job he doesn't know if he wants to keep being a pianist he's kind of unsure about getting married like you know Um, And he comes back from the high school reunion and sees all of his old friends who have never left the town of Knights Ridge. Um, His friends um, all have their own kind of personal melodramas going on. Um, So you have the only one that's like kind of like in a decent position, right, is uh, Mo, um, uh, which is the Noah Emmer character. And he's kind of like happily married with kids and stuff like that. Um, but kind of just keeps getting pulled back in occasionally by his other friends into their kind of like bullshit. Um, And uh, then there's Paul, which is the Michael Rappaport character. Uh, He's this kind of like man child whose walls are covered with picture, like swimsuits, what sports illustrated swimsuit models. And like, you know, all these other things like, you know um, and he has a, ex-girlfriend at the in the movie which is Martha Plimpton's character she's a waitress they've broken up by this point but he wants to get her back and which although seemingly he wants to get her back because he can't have her (laughs) I mean um so it's again this is kind of man-child mentality uh then there's like who else there's Tommy um and Tommy was the Matt Dillon character and he was like I don't think he was literally the high school quarterback, but like he was like, you know, big man on campus and high school, very popular athlete. Um, he's um, what married right now. And um,
0: no, they're not married. They're just together.
1: Just together. Okay. Um, and that's, uh, uh, da, 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 I don't have her name listed here. Um,
0: Mira Servino. Um, Mira
1: Servino. Um, and, she kind of like puts up with like, you know, she, I, cause she suspects, I guess like, you know, but he's having an affair with his high school sweetheart um, who's played by um, uh, Lauren Holly. Um, and, you know, that ends up getting exposed to one point. And then finally there's stinky who runs the bar um, and his <clears throat> cousin comes in the town, which is played by Uma Thurman. um, who's this like, you know, beautiful woman who comes in the town and is interesting and funny and witty um and ends up acting as a voice of reason for like a number of different characters throughout the movie um and um then finally um this, with all those things going on willie comes back into like into this kind of like mess um of all these different characters all of his friends um when he stays with his dad next door, there is a 13 year old, um, neighbor, um, and, uh, named Willie, um, uh, 13 uh, year old female named Willie. Um, what's that? Marty, 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 Marty. Um, Oh, right. Willie is the main character's name. Um, there's so many names I just have listed here. And like I, the way I wrote them down, it's just dumb. Um, I, I should have done it better. Marty. um, And there's this awkward flirtatious relationship between the two of them that takes place. Um, Marty is extremely bright for her age she's extremely mature for her age in a lot of ways um she talks like someone in her 20s often except for when she doesn't um and they develop this kind of rapport with each other um and this weird casual flirting um ultimately luckily goes nowhere and um you know he kind of just sees it as like this girl is going to be you know a firebrand at some point in her life and tries to give her like encouragement and lets her down you know um in terms of like whatever hope she had um for anything potentially um and eventually like you know all these things get resolved like in one way or another um and you know willie kind of like leaves uh with his fiance to go back home or his you know new home um and that's that's about it like and life continues in the small town of knight's Ridge.
0: all right um so and you really uh you really did not um did not include a lot of um stuff that happens in this movie like what I mean I don't know there's all kinds of small like storylines um there's the whole thing about like Darian and trying to break up um uh Matt Dillon's relationship even though he doesn't even know if he wants the relationship but then he realizes that she's just being trashy and she keeps trying to fuck him and there's the thing with her husband and Yeah, well, I'm just that's I I mentioned that
1: that storyline is happening. I just didn't give the resolution of that story.
0: Michael Rappaport, or yeah, Rappaport being like an ultra creep and like basically burying his girlfriend's garage under snow like every night because even though he loves her, he feels like if he can't have her, nobody can. So he's gonna walk her in. I mean,
1: yeah, right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I just didn't play out the different stories. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about what it is um, in beautiful girls that you find so appealing. I think it's,
1: I think the theme that's developing through a lot of this is like the strength of a supporting cast around the strength of leads. Um, And I think that this is, while there's a primary character protagonist, I guess, and Willie, I think that this is an ensemble story and the strength of the performances in this I think is really strong first of all. So I'll start with the lead first in Timothy Hutton. I'm I think this was like my first real exposure to Timothy Hutton. Um, I don't remember Taps very well and then what's the other thing? Was he in Red Dawn? Like oh
0: maybe i don't I, really.
1: I can't remember but it's like i i i this is my first exposure to timothy Hutton as the lead at least anyway um and i became a really big timothy Hutton fan because of this movie and like followed a lot of things that he did and watched a lot of movies he did just because i really liked him in this role um I think time has proven me right that Timothy Hutton is a really strong, capable actor, um, and but um, he's fantastic. I think in this role of playing this kind of like, look, it's whiny and white and conflicted, <laughs> like. But it's like I think that he's really good at playing this, you know, this character. And he's supported by a lot of really great performances. Like, I would argue this is one of Dylan's, like, most realistic best performances that I've seen him in. Um, Some actresses that I'm not, that don't have a lot of critical acclaim um, necessarily, but, um, and I'm not big fans of, I still think, like, really nail these roles. Like, I love Lauren Holly in this. I think she nails her role perfectly. Um, I think the same thing about Miris Ravino um, does a really good job in this. Um, all of the supplemental actors and actresses in this. Um, Martha Plimpton showing up out of nowhere um, after a number of years. Um, I think is great in this. Natalie Portman, I think, shows at... She's not 13 in this, but I think she's still pretty young, like 15 or something like that. I think she shows that she's a star Um in this movie, like at a, at a very young age, um, of, of why she became what she did. I love my, I always love Michael Rappaport, like in a lot of things that he does. I know that like he, especially this time of his career, he's kind of like, a typecast, a stereotype to some degree, but, um, he's a guy who's also shown that he has a lot of like acting chops and like range and stuff that he's done like throughout the years as he's gotten older. um, so I think that's proven out. Uh, Noah Emmerich, um, now it's kind of typecast usually as like a bad guy to some degree. Like, you know, the the, the prick that comes in like in a suit. Um, and But I think he's very realistic uh, in this. Um, I think Uma Thurman's charming. Uh, in the movie, so I think that everybody just kind of like really like nails their characters and their roles. I think that's like one of the things. Like on the surface, seeing this at you know the age of seventeen or whatever, that like probably like struck me. Um, the other thing is, I think even at that age, I could probably relate to Willie in some ways, even though this is about like somebody in their thirties. He's, he's twenty six. Oh, is it only a ten year reunion?
0: Yeah oh okay um 27 they're all 27 28 years old 28 years old okay all right
1: see i'm thrown off by that because like i always thought they were really old because i was 17 um so that age thing comes into play um when i first saw this but um i yeah, it does contextualize it differently for me then um but I, this idea that he wanted to escape um this small town probably resonated with me in some ways, but I'm also really drawn to the idea of somebody coming back to their small town. Um, five easy pieces is something that like is always like resonating with me. The piano scene, um, you know, one of like the three like scripts that I ever worked on was about the idea of somebody coming back home again, like, and um, I'm I'm really drawn to that idea in general of you know going home after a number of years. Um, I think the locale itself I can associate with in some ways um, of small lower middle class um, like setting and. It's like, even at the, even at the age I first saw this, it's like, it's almost like it was like showing me a potential future of like what happens to people like as they age. Um, And it's not entirely incorrect (laughs) Um, of people getting stuck in patterns and not really wanting to change or evolve and willie himself stuck in the same trap even though he got out or whatever like he's still like you know like fighting this idea he's a pianist right like he he, you know he's the guy that got out he's the guy that's going to be successful and like it's not working and um but he kind of recognizes that to some degree and like you know is the one that like you know is trying to like regroup um so i think the the situation appealed to me at a young age. It still appeals to me to now, like, in some ways. Like, um, it's almost, like, to some degree, I've been unconsciously thinking about this movie, like, for a lot of my life, I think. Um, or at least, like, the... If not this movie, the ideas that this movie presents um, is something that, like, is constantly, I think, like, on my mind, like, here and there. Um, And, um... Yeah, I think, I I mean, I think that's it. I think it's really well acted. I think it's sharp writing. I think it's largely realistic situations. Um, Overall, I think it's mostly realistic characters that you might actually see at some point, um, even if they're hyper stylized to fit the theme of the movie. Um, like, I, I think they're still pretty well drawn and, um, yeah, I think that's just something I've always, I I liked at 17 and, um, has resonated with me then has resonated with me throughout the rest of my life and still to some degree resonates with me now. Um, you know, whatever, 23 years later, like.
0: Hmm. Okay. So.
1: I think the fact that it's lower middle class, though, because uh, I know that's it's like I shit on white people movies all the time. This is like one of the whitest of white people movies. Yes. But I, I think the fact that it's in a setting I can associate with, much like when we talked about Lady Bird. I like Lady Bird as a white people movie, too, um, even though it's the whitest of white people movies. Um, but the fact that it showed a different class is something that I could relate to a lot more as opposed to the upper middle-class setting of a lot of white people movies. Yeah. Um, So I think that I can appreciate these kind of like lower middle-class movies a lot more than I can the. So it's really, it's like, when I say it's white people movies, I think it's more of a class issue probably more than it is necessarily. It's, it's just me um, being uh, uh, reductive, I guess, um, in my description as a attempt to be funny, um, when really it's more about class issues than anything else.
0: Okay. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it.
1: <laughs> well, you wanted you you, you I, wanted to talk to me about this the other night. I
0: I, I had a I had a realization, and not while I was watching the movie, but um, probably about. Uh, 16 to 18 hours after I watched it I was sitting there and I was thinking about it because I genuinely enjoyed this movie more this time than I have in the past and I am not a fan of this movie really Um, I just find it very like tiresome for the most part and I really hate the last like 25 minutes of it with the I don't know like matt Dillon getting beaten up by the husband and like why has that happened up to this point you know what i mean like i don't which it's it's so contrived regardless like i was watching it and i was thinking this movie is responsible for the trend of all the movies that you hate in the 2000s like i think that if you want to put like like a pin in the timeline of what you refer to as white people movies Mm -hmm. like it's this movie's fault that those movies Mm -hmm. exist and it's this movie's fault mm-hmm. that Natalie Portman exists in the sense that she does. Like Marty is directly responsible for whatever Natalie Portman's character's name is in fucking Garden State. Mm. And it's the it's really like the Gen X genesis of the.
1: It's exactly what I was just going to say. Yep, it's manic, the
0: gen- manic pixie dream girl, um, nonsense of like the nineties and two thousands like this this perfect quirky old soul wispy cute white girl who's like the dream of you know the soulful but misguided lost like white man i don't
1: know. yeah and look i'm i i i never didn't read interviews back in the day with um zach brief or anything like that like I have to I have to believe that he saw this movie and really liked it a lot.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: um, and that there's a reason that Natalie Portman's in Garden State. Um, so let me let me just a little bit like defend this and like come back at that just just a tad because you're right. It, 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 along the timeline, this exists. I think there's stuff that predates this that like is building towards, look, there's always been this idea, like if we're, again, this reductionist phrase, white people movies, this shit's always existed. Five Easy Pieces is part of that narrative too. Um, It's just coming from the boomer idea of like, you know, dropping out and then having to go back home again after you've dropped out. Um, So it's always existed. So yes, this is on the timeline when it comes to that manic pixie dream girl shit though this movie rejects that utterly and completely and the whole theme of this movie is about rejecting that sure um
0: and i'm not trying to make the point that it embraces it i'm just saying that it creates it within like the realm of this character especially in how it's used throughout like the late 90s and like yeah the, the,
1: the subsequent use of the of it in what garden state and internal sunshine and you know like sure. but you know like yeah sure i mean but it's like it, if people are doing that then they're doing what this movie is telling them not to do
0: yeah i agree with that um i think it's completely missing the point of how it's used in this movie but
1: yeah and i, I mean look i mean because one of the most <clears throat> one of the biggest things this movie is the fact that she's 13 years old and this is going on like this this flirtation I I've watched this movie twice now in the past few months um, because I watched it and that's how it ended up coming up with us again Um, and then I watched it again Marty is just part of the theme of this movie and it's an un- it's uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong, and I, I don't think it's problematic though. But I do think it's uncomfortable. And the whole story is this is a guy torn between his and all of them. All of them are torn between their this idea of the past, which also is like tied into the idea of fantasy, um, and living in the present or the future. Like all of these characters are are doing that, and like. Willie needs to move on to an adult life. One that's not this kind of bullshit fantasy that he had as a child of being this hotshot pianist. Um, and like Rosie O'Donnell's character lays out the entire theme of this fucking movie. Like during like that scene where she's walking around the store and talking to a couple of the characters where she explains that some men are obsessed with, uh, what is it, Visions. Um, of women in magazines um, when they have great women around them all the time, um, and she's laying out the idea, and like, you know, uh, the Rappaport character is a perfect example of this, like, literally the visions of women, like, from these magazines um, versus the reality of the woman who he actually has a relationship with, but, like, keeps fucking up with, and then only wants her when he can't have her, much like the models in those magazines. Um, and So I don't think the, like, I don't think she's the little neighborhood Lolita. Do I think that she has like this little 13 year old, like, you know, crush on this dude? Absolutely. I mean, because those kind of things happen in real life. Do I think that he's on, like, do I think that he's trying to have a relationship with her? I don't. I think that he's like a dude who's trying to be nice to this 13 year old kid and is uncomfortable himself at times And because she speaks in such a way that a 20-something-year-old might, like, he slips into talking to her like an adult. Um, And I think that he's fucked up because he's torn between this idea of the past and the present, the fantasy and the reality. And I think that's what it's supposed to be signifying much more than, like... What a lot of people see as a problematic nature of him trying to like possibly fuck a thirteen year old.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I felt a lot less uncomfortable with um with that whole uh, subplot than I had in the past. The my 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 favorite part of of that whole like exchange is um when Noah Emmerich is at the pond skate with his kids and he sees um Hutton talking to uh Portman. And, like, he, the face he makes,
1: mm-hmm.
0: oh, my God, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's the best, like, oh, shit face, but then he's <laughs> got to, like, turn around and, like, keep skating after kids. It's, right. It's, it's, yeah. It's really impressive. I, you know, like, everything you said about this movie, I mostly agree with. But I think it takes too long to get into the meat of what I think is the true story of this movie, which is the relationship of these people through time and how some people can move on and some people can't and i think that if they would have played that out it would have been fine but then in the end it turns into this ridiculous like it's almost like a throwback to like an 80s um drama comedy or whatever Hmm. and then everyone has a good resolution in the end which is really annoying to me because you take like the good character development you've done through the whole movie and all of a sudden like oh well in the course of like one one special night or whatever like we all can come to terms with who we need to be and you know move on and grow and be good people and it's like no like that wouldn't happen like there's a reason these dudes have been plowing fucking snow and fixing gutters for 10 years and not moving on with their life it's because they're in a state of like arrested development from their high school Mm days so,
1: I agree. I mean, I I think the 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 happy ending for all is um is a bit much. Although I'm I'm still not convinced Willie has a like a necessarily happy ending. Like, um, I'm still not positive. Like, from any signs in that movie, that Willie is fully convinced himself that this is
0: this is the right move. Like. Well, at least in the moment it's what he thinks is the. Right in the moment
1: right yeah but it's like I, I it still feels that willie's like the the deeper thinker out of all of them to some degree that like realizes like this could just be him bullshitting himself once again and i think that's the subtlety of hudden's acting as opposed to um necessarily anything that's probably was on the page it's just my guess that's just me just guessing that um but yeah so i mean i don't know i i've I still really enjoy this movie. Um, I think it was, I wouldn't say influential to me, but it was certainly, it resonated with me and it still continues to resonate with me to some degree, even though I can acknowledge some of those flaws you pointed out.
0: I just, it's something where like, it was fine to watch it. I wasn't like angry or anything. Mm -hmm. Again, the same problems that I've had with it for the most part are what I still had with it, even though I'm like older now and i would never say it was a terrible movie but it's not something i ever want to watch again really so right like this was maybe the fourth time i've seen it and i think that's probably enough
1: yeah i think that's probably the same for me like i mean including having
0: to watch it twice in the theater so <laughs>
1: was that uh was that one of those things where it's like you made plans with two different people
0: <laughs> I made plans with somebody and then it was for like later in a weekend and then I want to say it was, like, Chuck and Zeke and some other people wanted to see it, and I was like, yeah, I'll go see it. And then I had to pretend like I hadn't seen it when I went to see it with, um... What year is this movie? 96. Yeah, so... Shit. Probably Rebecca and I went to see this, too, and I had to pretend like I hadn't seen it. Which is really difficult when I dislike a movie, because then I have to, like... It's like a masterclass in acting at that point.
1: Weaving webs, man. That's an an old Frank move.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm so fucking mature now, but but yeah.
1: All right, I'm done with this movie. Mm
0: -hmm. All right, cool. So we'll move on to your number two movie, uh, 1992 drama "Scent of a Woman," uh, directed by Martin Bress, um, starring uh, Al Pacino, Chris O'Donnell. James Reborn, Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, Francis Conroy. It is a 89% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. It is a 92% from the audience on Rotten Tomatoes. So our highest audience score of the evening. Um, You want to go ahead and tell me about uh, why you made me watch this two hour and 40 minute spectacle? Is this where it turns?
1: Is this where it turns from like the the, the indifference turns a little bit? It's it's
0: it's. it's definitely skirting indifference yeah some other um, negative emotion at this point
1: all right so this is the one that i dreaded giving a synopsis of because there's just so many like little almost vignettes throughout this whole thing um so you have two primary characters the first one is charlie sims he's at a prep school um baird um in new england and he um uh is poor comes from comes from a poor family is there on scholarship everybody else at baird is largely coming from rich families um he um and in the meantime your other main character is uh Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade who was an army ranger um he's retired and he is also a blind alcoholic at this point who lives in the in law suite of his, um, uh, is it? Niece. Niece. Right. Um, so, um, Charlie's like primary story early on in this is that um, he has a loose relationship with a character named George Willis Jr., which is one of the asshole, rich people that goes to Baird and some of George's friends, um, another group of um, uh, Baird students uh, who dislike the headmaster, um, uh, Mr. Trask, uh, played by Reborn. Um, They pull a prank on him, uh, cover his, uh, you know, half a balloon like that blows up over top of this new, uh, what was it? Was it a Mercedes or like Cadillac or something like that? Or Jaguar. Jaguar. Okay. Um, and uh, they have this balloon that blows up over his Jaguar, make him look like a fool. Like when he goes to like try to pop the balloon, there's pain in the balloon. It covers like the Jaguar. Um, Trask is, you know, kind of like outraged by the entire thing. Um, the two people that saw this prank being set up are our main character, Charlie and the George Willis Jr. character, which is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, in an early role for him. So, um, neither, they both, uh, there, he's George Willis tells Charlie like, Hey, stonewall him. Don't tell him anything. Uh, Trask kind of threatens Charlie with his scholarship. Um, if he doesn't tell the truth, but it's Thanksgiving weekend. So he's going to let everybody go home or do whatever they're going to do for Thanksgiving. Um and let them kind of like think on it before they have a hearing the following uh, Monday after they come back from Thanksgiving. What they're doing during Thanksgiving is um, George Willis Jr. and those people that did the prank are all going skiing in some sort of, you know, luxurious cabin somewhere, um, while Charlie is, because he's poor and takes odd jobs, is going to go ahead and babysit Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade, um, so that his niece and her family can kind of go on vacation. Um, so Charlie's pretty green to life in general, like you know, um, like and and, and the, the hardships, I think, of adulthood. Like he's he's pretty naive, I guess. Um Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade is this kind of like unctuous, you know, um, you know loudmouth who is commanding like he's still in a barracks um and orders people around and is foul-mouthed and uh you know unpc pc and you know uh he has decided that once the family leaves he's going to force charlie um rather than just babysitting there at the in-law suite he's going to force charlie to go with him to new york city um Much to Charlie's chagrin, he goes along, but he thinks he's going to come back on the next plane, like, you know, and get back uh, to town. But they end up going to New York City and Charlie ends up staying with him throughout the weekend uh, or the holidays and the weekend. So they have a number of, like, adventures during this time. Um, uh, The first is, like, them really, like, paying a visit to uh, Frank Slade's family, like, to his brother's house for Thanksgiving dinner. Um, it is obvious the family does not want him there whatsoever. Um, one of his nephews, who's played by Bradley Whitford, um, ends up kind of verbally like uh uh poking him like throughout the dinner. Um it gets really pointed. Um and he keeps calling Charlie Chucky. Um, and it eventually ends up with Frank. Um, oh, it's also revealed during this point that Frank is blind because he was drunk and playing with grenades, um, and ends up like, you know, uh, uh, fucking up and like the grenade goes off and he ends up losing his eyesight out of it. Um, so anyway, he calls him Chucky one too many times as he's kind of like, you know, uh, verbally kind of berating Frank. Um, and Slade, like, ends up crapping him by the fucking neck in, like, some kind of ranger chokehold. Um, and, uh, they basically get kicked out of the house at this point. And, um, another one involves um, what, like, uh, Frank Slade getting, uh, a female escort for the night, where he seems, you know, because he just, he loves women, he wants to have, you know, sex with a woman again at some point, and he ends up having, like, you know, this, um, this night with an escort um after that night he's despondent um uh and Charlie kind of coaxes him out of that despondency by suggesting that they go test drive a Ferrari um and that's enough to kind of like get um Slade out of his funk what you're realizing during this all, whole time like as a viewer is that Frank Slade is suicidal he wants to end his life that this is kind of like a final hurrah Charlie is again naive. He doesn't see any of this um uh, coming. And he um is just now through like the depression of Slade during this moment, starting to realize okay, there's something deeper going on here. Meanwhile, Charlie has been calling uh George Willis Jr., trying to call George Willis Jr. He does get a hold of him at one point, um, where you know George Willis has been telling him yeah, just keep stonewalling, keep stonewalling him. Um, But then he finally finds out that George's father has gotten involved George George Willis senior. And he's starting to feel more and more uh, like he is being left out to hang uh, by himself and that he won't be protected during this hearing on Monday morning. Uh, So they go drive a Ferrari like this gets uh, Frank out of his funk um, for a little bit and um he ends up then they come back he sends Charlie to run a list of errands Charlie like you know comes back at leaves, but comes back into the room he finds Frank uh in his military uniform he's getting ready to kill himself um there's this kind of like emotional scene where Charlie's trying to get him to not do it Frank's threatens murder at that point um uh, murder suicide at that point eventually like Slade ends up backing down um and he agrees to, like, go back home and, um, you know, like, uh, with him. So the their limo driver, who's been with him the entire time, Manny, um, ends up taking him back to Baird, drops, you know, Charlie off. Like, Charlie's going to go to his, like, hearing that he has to go to as a potential witness. Um, it seems like he's going to be left there by himself. Um, and then there's the big moment where, like, you know, Frank has realized like, you know, what's been going on this entire time as he's asked some questions or overheard telephone conversations, he comes in led by the limo driver like he who's helping him in and comes and uh, is the second kind of for Charlie during this hearing and ends up having this um very famous scene now for most people that you know uh, even if they don't know the movie have heard some dialogue from this scene where um colonel frank slade like ends up like you know defending charlie um and getting him um cleared of any kind of like uh uh what um losing a scholarship or whatever there's no Um,
0: consequence for it
1: right yes so um so, yeah, and then the movie ends, like it looks like Frank Slade, uh, Francis Conroy has a small role in this where like, you know, she's impressed by um, what Slade does. And she's an instructor there at the college um, or at the sorry, at the private school. And um, she and it seems like, you know, there might be a thing with Frank and her at some point. So Frank might actually find a woman that like, you know, like he can actually have a relationship with. Um and uh charlie's you know whatever cleared and free to go wouldn't do whatever um and that's pretty much the end of the movie um they separate you know they go their separate ways and that's it <sighs> all right okay i got you that one. um it's very like fragmented that movie like in times it's very specific like especially in the new york stuff it's very specific scenes and i think i even skipped a couple of them um as i was doing this All right, so why do I like this movie? I saw this movie again when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Um, So a lot of these are nostalgia things for me. I think think this is the top five Pacino performance ever. I don't know where it ranks because I haven't really looked at Pacino's filmography to determine that, but I think that it's higher than lower on that list for me. Um, I think this is a standout performance from Pacino, who has a lot of standout performances. Um, I think he's created a fully realized character. I think that it has subtlety and nuance to it. Um, For somebody who doesn't, for a character who doesn't have a lot of subtlety and nuance to him, um, in Frank Slade, Chino has a lot of subtlety and nuance, I think to the characterization of Frank Slate. I also think, and this isn't like any kind of like fucking great claim, but I think it's Chris O'Donnell's best performance that I've ever seen him in. Um, <clears throat> and again, he's had a lot of bad performances since then. Again, I think there's a supporting cast here and this is the theme that's developed throughout all of these. I think the supporting cast is really strong overall. Um, I love the, the, the Manny character. I love the actor that plays him. Um, I love James Reborn as um, Headmaster Trask. I think he's just this slimy piece of shit um, who's just self-centered and self-interested. Um, and that's a role he plays a lot um, in, in a lot of movies, but he he nails it. Um, I think that uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in this role, again, perfection. I think the ones that play um, it, Harry, Jimmy, and Trent um who are the uh you know ones that perform the prank like as small roles as they are and it's usually i think it's harry is the main one um i think he's great in like that little role of just being this like again this like you know uh uh, eddie haskell type figure um little things like i think like ron ellard like has a very small role as a police officer when he's young like i think that works so again i think the supporting cast is really strong in this i think it like you know moves moves things along i think the final scene at the college as kind of meme worthy as it became at some point and um with um pacino um given his you know soliloquy kind of um and his hooahs and all that kind of stuff i mean i think that it's a really powerful scene i think it's extremely well done uh, i think it's really well written dialogue and all that kind of stuff um it for a guy who spends a lot of his time making jokes about how you know he wants to he wants his room filled what wall-to-wall with john daniels and um you know uh as charlie says you know don't you mean jack and he says you may be jack maybe jack to you son but if you know him as long as i have uh like when he makes those kind of jokes or jokes about women like in terms of like the s- scent of their vaginas and stuff like that these off-handed like terrible like things like um throughout like you know these uh the, the dialogue that he delivers in that final scene, like in the eloquence that he has at times, um, still kind of in that barracks tone, but um, uh, hold on. I, I wrote it down here. It's like what I mean by that is like you said... Um, there was a time where I could see and I have seen boys like these younger than these, their arms torn out, their legs ripped off. There's nothing like the sight of an amputated spirit. There's no prosthetic for that. You think you're merely sending this splendid soldier back home to Oregon with his tail between his legs. But I say, sir, you're executing his soul uh, because he's not a bared man. Um, like that kind of eloquence, like mixed in with his, you know, military like speak. I think, like, really, like, makes that scene extremely powerful, um, um, and I just think it's a, it's a, it's a, look, it's a typical cheesy ending to, like, a, like, a com or, like, a, like, a dramedy kind of, like, at times, like, um, more of a drama than a comedy, but, um of this again, everybody cheering, right? It's it's this the Crimson Tide thing all over again. Like everybody again like, is cheering. But um But I think it works and I think it's effective. Um, you know, in terms of like how that story is supposed to play out. Look, this movie's long. I know it's long. Like I told you to be wary that it was long. I think that when they first introduced Pacino's character. I think we just, yeah, we discussed this all fair. When they first introduce Pacino's character to the point that like they go to New York, that's when all the stuff with like the uh, prank happens. It's like 20 minutes between Pacino's introduction and then you getting back to Pacino. I think that's too long. I think the New York scenes...
0: Way are, too long.
1: I think they're in New York for too long and I think there's too many like specific scenes... I will say in defense that I do think everything plays to the end goal to some degree, but it's still too long. Um, I don't think there's anything in terms of scenes that are extraneous. I think it's the scenes maybe that go on at times too long, um, as opposed to like the scenes themselves being extraneous. There might be some overlap of some scenes, but I really have to pick at it at that point.
0: I mean, I would argue that just because a scene isn't extraneous doesn't mean that it still belongs in the film. Sure.
1: Yeah, could be. So anyway, I think it's a brilliant performance by Pacino. I think it's a really good performance by Chris O'Donnell. I think that it's two fully realized characters that are put in this situation through circumstance and um, both of them growing beyond the situations and you know, mistakes or you know mistake for Pacino's character, uh, the background for O'Donnell's character, and a kind of a overcoming an out you know those situations in their life to become better through their relationship. Um, and I think it's a touching movie. I think it's a funny movie at times. Um, and I think it's extremely well written. I think it's very competently directed with really great performances.
0: Right. I mean, I don't know. Like, you already brought up my biggest complaints about this movie, which is number one, it's an hour too long. And it takes way too much time in...
1: you've added another 15 minutes since the last time you told me about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was... (laughs) If this movie was two hours long, it'd be fine. I probably still would think it was like 10 minutes too long, but I'd be okay with it. Uh Like it just beats you over the head with these same ideas over and over. It's like, I don't know. Look, I recognize the strength of Pacino's performance in this movie. And I went back to try and um, I was going to try and refute your claim of being a top five, top five performance, but I think that's true i would put it at number five i think on my top five list of his but it's it's fine
1: um i will say it's the we talked about a little this a little bit i think it's such a strong performance that it basically stereotypes him for most of the rest oh of yeah his career.
0: no this is
1: Heat's the only one that he kind of breaks some of that and even there he, he does some of it
0: that's still close enough where he hadn't become a meme yet really right And even then he still has the great ass thing that he does in heat. So there's this is definitely the genesis point of Al Pacino becoming a joke Mm -hmm. basically for the remainder of his career. Um I don't know, I find it to be pretty uneven throughout. Like I think that it's meant to really invest you in the relationship between these two men um almost like a grandfather grandson type relationship which is eventually what it evolves into but it's Mm -hmm. like i think you could have done it in a more succinct manner um i don't particularly feel invested or any kind of like tension with what's gonna happen to charlie like i don't care about charlie at all i guess Mm -hmm. um I think that it's almost unbelievable when he turns into like a guy that's willing to stand up to this old military man with a gun, but it's fine. Like, cause you need it to happen in the story. Like it's an important character moment, but I kind of wish that they had just, I don't know. I don't know. Like some of the, like, I don't know what to tell you to cut out of this movie, but something's got to go and I don't know what it is. And It's just, it's really boring to me. Like, as good as the performances are, I just don't care, ultimately, at the end. And when they're all, like, everyone erupts in cheers for Charlie, it it feels unearned. It feels like...
1: The cheers are... You're right. The cheers are unearned. I hate the cheering.
0: Like, that's not the way that that ends, I guess, in my head. I mean, maybe he, like, gets off or whatever, but I don't know. It's hard to explain because, like, I I can see why this movie is so lauded and why people love it, and I understand that Pacino's performance is good in it. I just don't care about any of it in the long run, and it is never something I would have ever watched again had you not forced me to watch it. So, like, not even on accident. Like, if that movie like popped up somewhere and I was like super sick and it was the only thing I could watch, I, I would just roll over. And try and be sick in the other direction as opposed to like watching this movie. That's
1: funny. I mean, I can I, I kind of see it. I mean, um, I was not as m- m- much of a fan of this now as I was when I was 13, 14, like in that range. Um, but... I still like it. Um uh, I recognize its flaws much more now. Um Like you're talking about like th- things you can cut. Honestly, one of the most famous scenes in the movie is like when he Tango danced. scene. Yep, but what is it what does it do?
0: Nothing. There's no point to it. I agree. Like all it does is like build Frank up to be this guy that you're like, "Oh yeah, like I can see why you know, this dude was like a hit with the ladies or whatever."
1: Right. Um, and uh, honestly a lot of the stuff with Frank and women that includes the dialogue of him being a pervert at times and the scenes involving the escort the scenes involving Gabrielle and Warren the tango they don't really add anything because it doesn't matter it doesn't pertain to the idea that Conroy comes up to him at the end
0: right well to frank i mean it's just they smell nice and they have soft skin i mean that's like right what he loves about a woman it's not like her intelligence or her ability to charm him with her it's like uh i can smell their perfume and i like their vaginas
1: right right like it's you you could easily do something with like the smell and still have that last scene happen without doing all that extra stuff like it, it it does feel like a lot of that stuff just isn't pertinent it's It's some kind of fixation from the screenwriter like at that point um which could have been cut so uh, that that's something I think you can cut, and it's at least twelve minutes, thirteen minutes probably of the movie, yeah, maybe
0: more right to no end, right like so, you if if it would have been done to like show Charlie as like blooming into like adulthood and being able to talk to this woman it's fine but it's like i don't right know. right
1: yeah because there's nothing with charlie and women where it's like he's like learned any lessons or anything like not that those are necessarily the lessons you should be learning from from colonel frank slate but um but still like yeah it's uh, so I, yeah i agree with that i mean it's it's not it's it's a pretty obvious flaw that i saw was that uh, tango scene like it's like why am i what is this like it didn't matter but yeah, I still enjoyed it
0: overall. Yeah, it's what's whatever. <sighs> All right. Oh shit, I'm not even prepared. See, look, no, I you're already... not. we talked about that goddamn movie for as long as that movie ex- is like the runtime. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So your number one movie, my however you want to talk about it, the number one movie on this list that is... you're most
1: indifferent to means you dislike the most, right? Yes. Yes
0: um 1981's i uh, my dinner with andre i don't want to i don't want to give too much away my dinner with andre 1981 directed by louis malle starring and forgive me if i run out of breath as i go through this expansive cast wallace shawn and andre gregory that's it it's got a rotten tomatoes critic score of 92% and an 85% audience score so, um, hit me. Tell me about this movie. So,
1: it takes place in New York City. Actor, playwright has dinner with the theater director that he knew at one point, but he hasn't seen in many years. Um He's not, he's a little hesitant about meeting him because of the stories that he's heard about the director recently in terms of specifically a story about the director sobbing in the street and talking with trees. Um He... Meets him at this really expensive restaurant. He has to be given a coat and a necktie to wear since he's not dressed appropriately for it. Um, He waits in the bar for a while for his friend to arrive. Uh, The director, who's named Andre, shows up and he hugs Wally, um, you know, who is the uh, actor-playwright. And uh, the staff seems to know Andre pretty well. Uh, They're seated at a table. um, And... Uh, Andre ends up going on um, as narcissists do um, for the next 45 minutes of telling um, Wally what's happened, you know, in his life for the past, like, you know, however many years since they've seen each other. Um, and it's filled with stories about like going into uh, doing an experimental theater in the forests of Poland um he went to the sahara with a tibetan buddhist monk um uh let's see there was stuff um where he stayed on like some estate in long island i remember like you know so there's all these things you know and there's like a uh, like a ritual of rebirth that he was involved in with all these other people where um so he tells these like you know all these like different things that have happened to him like throughout all this time um And his whole idea is he's trying to break free of the habits of the idea of, I think he calls it mechanical, like mechanical living, um, in these stories that he's telling. And he's trying to basically find some sort of deeper meaning to life, um, throughout all these experiences. So once he kind of like ends, like, you know, his explanation of what he's been doing, um, Wally has a lot of questions. Um, and you can see through his reactions throughout the movie, like, you know, that he's like at times like confused. Sometimes he's like kind of like put off, you know? And so he has like all these questions. And he starts like having slightly antagonistic questions at times. Like, you know, um, once Andres finished a story about like, you know, some of his experiences. And you get the sense that like Wally is this kind of like, um, he's still engaged in this idea of mechanical living. Like, you know, he's this rationalist, you know, who's very pragmatic. Um, And he thinks that Andre, some of the stuff that Andre is doing is absolutely ridiculous and potentially even harmful. Um, And uh, so he realizes that like, you know, what he sees and what Andre sees out of some of those like experiences Andre tells him about, like that he's, misunderstood at times you know um and ultimately there's no real resolution to this conversation um it just kind of like the the restaurant closes it ends and on the ride home wally um you know he's in a taxi and he's like kind of doing a voiceover the evening's conversation um and as he's driving through, he's looking out at the city. He recalls a lot of things from his childhood, he says, um, because of the parts that they're driving through. But he says he sees everything in a slightly different way. Um that's very reminiscent of oh, what is his name? Um, Cathedral, um, is this is the short story about the blind guy named Bub, um, and the guy who doesn't like him who's um, I can't remember the name of it, but um, Cathedral, Cathedral is the name of it, um, but I cannot remember the writer's name. Uh, Raymond Carver, um, it's a Raymond Carver short story. Um, it kind of ends up with this idea, which is very popular among boomers, of like the changed perspective. Um, it happens a lot in boomer literature and stuff like that. And that's where this ends—is this idea of changed perspective, like you know, like he sees things a little bit differently than he did before. (sighs) So I know you like despise this movie. Um,
0: The thing is, I don't despise it. I just don't see—I don't feel like it enlightens you or makes you a better person. I think it's really. I think they're both loathsome individuals. I mean, I think it's like the ultimate like intellectual elitism and is very like masturbatory, especially cuz they're both kind of playing themselves. And I get it, like I get that the dialogue is pretty ingenious at times. You know, I love Wallace Shawn and whatever, but man, I just don't care about this movie at all.
1: So, this is a very specific this is like where the other ones i have all these things about the movie that i can say and like the reasons why i liked it and stuff like that i don't really have necessarily a lot to say in terms of those kind of things about this it's a it's look it's it's damn medium and close medium shots and close ups of two guys sitting in a restaurant having a having a conversation right like i mean um which i'm sure some of it's ad-libbed and some of it's a script but so I was like 16 when I saw this. I had called it about, I would probably, I, I, I want to estimate now, it's probably like about six minutes into the movie. And this was like a revelation to me at the age of 16. I had, I wasn't somebody who was experienced with theater, like at all. Like I didn't, like I knew plays existed. I had read plays, but I had never actually like really been to a play at the age of 16 um, other than the damn dumb school plays, like, you know, if I was involved in, in like middle school or something like that, but it's like, I'd never actually seen real theater. Um, so the idea to me at the age of 16 or whatever, maybe 15, something like that. When I saw this, um, it's whenever Comcast around here got, I think Sundance, um, or IFC or one of those. And it was, and this was playing, And I watched the entire thing and I was captivated by it because I never under, I didn't understand that you could do this in movies, that you could make a movie where it's just two people talking. And I thought the things they were talking about were, there was a lot of things that were, I thought it was was bizarre at times, especially when Andre's like, talking about his experiences it was things that like i didn't understand necessarily or had never heard of before and just thought were completely bizarre so i kind of took the wally approach to like listening to like this guy but i also have never seen actors deliver things in such a naturalistic way that <coughs> excuse me that i could um that i thought was captivating um because it's being delivered like real people speaking So what this movie introduced me to was first the idea that you could just take a camera and film two people and it could be a movie. Um, Much like a lot of stage plays that I actually like of taking two or three or four people and like, you know, like just having things happen between them and like a lot of it being based around dialogue. Um, Like, like Top Dog, Underdog is like one of my favorite plays. And it's like, you know, I, and it's just two people, right? Like, I mean, like, um, you know, wait, you know, waiting for Godot. Like, you know, I mean, it's like things that like that that, like, I'd never seen before. I didn't realize naturalistic dialogue, like, was a thing that could actually be captivating. I thought, like, even though I didn't understand that language at the time, I thought it all had to be stylized. Um, and these are people that are interrupting themselves with awkward pauses and ums and ahs and 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 I, I thought that was like amazing that it's just like so naturalistic. Um personally, I find the conversation that they have as elitist as it is in the way that it's done. I think the core philosophical conversation that they're having is an important one. Um it's the manner in which they do it, I think, is what you resent, because it's not different at times from conversations that we've had about certain things we're just not doing it in such a highfalutin pretentious way um but i think the core conversation that they're having about the idea of the external versus the internal is something that everybody like to some degree touches on at some point in their life of like you know a life of responsibilities and obligations and things versus a life of feeling, um, of like, you know, who the person is internally. Um, I think that's an important conversation philosophically, um, to think about in terms of like everybody's life and self-awareness. And I find it interesting to rewatch. Now I've watched it two times in the past year, year and a half. That's too much but I do think it's something that I am interested in much like wild strawberries where I've said that it's like, I think I'll take something different away from it every 10 years by watching it. I think it's similar with this movie where if I watch it every 10 to 15 years, I'm interested to see where I stand on the different subtle points they bring up because it's not easy. Like what they're discussing because there's times I agree with Andre on certain things. And there's times I agree with Wally on other things. And then I'll flip flop and be like, no, I actually believe this from Andre now and this from Wally. Um, and I, I think it's interesting to go back and kind of like use it as a self assessment type thing. Um, to kind of see like where I stand on like some of these like deeper issues about my own life and like where I'm at. um, but ultimately I was captivated by this because I had never experienced theater before, and this was the closest I ever got to theater, and I didn't understand the power of naturalistic dialogue. That's why I fell in love with this movie and like hold it so true to my heart, really, is because of that that experience of seeing it that one night.
0: Well, I'm glad you take something from it. <sighs> I mean, I got nothing to say. I don't know what to tell you. Just, I just, I don't enjoy it at all. It's which is, just, it's, I mean, I get what you're saying. It's just way too pretentious, man. Like, both of them are, like, Wallace Shawn hasn't sacrificed anything. He's just a fucking failure. And he's even worse because he's a failure that won't admit that he's failed to the point of just, like, moving on and doing something else with his, his life. And they live in this, like, fucking fictitious New York City where his poor ass can afford to live in the city even though he ain't done shit for, like, 10 years. And Andre can jet-set around the world and have fucking, like, masturbation sessions in the goddamn Black Forest. Oh, man. I'm telling you. Like, it's just... Like, every time you think they can't get more loathsome, they just say something where you just... I don't know. Right. But I get it. Like, I get why people like it, too. So, I don't know.
1: Like, what what do you get about people liking it? Like, if you hate it that much, though? I
0: think that it's two... masterful performances by two actors who are playing weird slightly alternate universe versions of themselves mm-hmm. i think the fact that louis mao is able to still control his camera in a way where he makes the act of two people eating dinner <clears throat> somewhat visually interesting to watch i think is pretty brilliant um i get it like i understand it and i understand to your point like a lot of people this was their first exposure to the idea that you can make a movie that's just a couple people talking to each other and it'd still be a successful movie. I think that was pretty innovative and mind blowing at the time. But it doesn't make it my cup of tea. You know what I mean? So Yeah. Yeah,
1: the one thing watching it twice in a year that I'll say like is negative of this besides the pretension and all that kind of stuff. I mean, but they're New York elitists. I mean, like I that's what I expect. Like art art elitists. I mean, like it doesn't shock me. Um but I really dislike the coda on the drive home from the taxi. Like, um, it, it is my least favorite thing in the entire movie. Actually him going to the dinner is also, yeah, it's, 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 like, it's the bookend. Yeah. It's the bookend like that. I, that I, I've, I've grown to dislike over time of like his voiceover. And I especially hate the voiceover about the whole things where he like sees things in a different way. Um, I am not a fan of that shit. Like, like I said, it appears in baby boom literature all the time. Um, And I didn't realize it was a trope for a long time in my life, but it's a fucking trope in baby boom stuff of this idea that this one experience can change you. Um, Which do not get me wrong. Like, you know, like art does that all the time. Like the, what? beautiful girls that we just talked about like one night can change your life you know um but like here's like one conversation can make you things they see things differently and that's not incorrect right i mean like it's not a wrong notion you can have one conversation with somebody and see things just slightly differently like that's true. true you know i mean you you gain experience through conversations with people but um this idea that it's this profound experience that requires it to be a movie is that height of just like self-centeredness to me um that comes along with that generation so i get it i mean I, i i get like how pretentious like this movie is to some degree it's not like i don't but i find that i find the arguments that are being made stripping that away important and again it's a very personal thing of stumbling upon this movie at like Eleven thirty at night um and being kind of floored by things i didn't know were possible in film
0: well i mean i i can appreciate it then i'm glad you enjoy it like i'm not even being facetious when i say that it's just not for me so yeah. and and its place on the list <sighs> right
1: all right now i don't I, I i don't have anything else um i'm slowly um Build, I'm slowly building up a list for another hate list. Um, a year from now in May,
0: brace um, it, motherfucker.
1: Uh, we got um, Red Heat. Is that one you hate?
0: I don't hate. Uh, Red Heat's probably closer to the indifference scale than the hate scale. God damn it! I've been trying to get
1: you to admit that you hate Red Heat for like three years now.
0: <clears throat> What's the hate about it? It's just not. It's again, it's just not my thing. Um yeah i I have one i have you got the one already so right you got one all right all right so thanks for listening um we'll be back next week with episode 111 two weeks which is two weeks sorry right next week's a break um top five horror movies in 1994 Mm -hmm. um then there's some other shit that happens after that on there this is (laughs) this bag this part
1: in, in 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 June, we will be doing an episode where uh, we will be having a first watch with friends of the podcast, Michael Bloodstone and Ryan Wellmaker of the uh, Hulk Hogan classic, Mr. Nanny. And then we will be doing an episode that will be our Pride Month episode, and we will be covering, what, the top five horror films of
0: 1995.
1: Yeah. So... That's that's what our June looks like, and then we're doing some Bond movies or some shit in July, which I'm already angry about because I have watched two of them and one of them I hated. So that could be fun because that uh, I I really hated that fucking movie a lot. Um. So. Uh. uh, uh, uh. Yeah, it's cool. Right. It'd be good. All right. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you for listening to my terrible voice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have to anyway. Just, it's worse when I have to speak
0: more though. I I I kinda like it. I <laughs> I enjoy being the host. It's um well you can sit there and watch wrestling while I'm sitting there talking. It's true. It's moderately relaxing. I got to watch all the backlash. <laughs> right. And still participate. I didn't have to summarize anything, which uh-huh. was a plus. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. Well I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: I did enjoy it. It was good, and I honestly like I enjoyed watching four of these five movies. So, yeah, right.
1: Well, I'm glad, and I'm glad that I didn't. I wasn't a complete success. My only hope was that you came away from Crimson Tide liking it. Um, I don't know I, it's
0: it's fine. I didn't. <laughs> right. All right. Thank you for listening. Have a good night.